Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, January 12th, 2024, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Chris Christie drops out of the Republican presidential race. As Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis face off in the fifth GOP debate. Papua New Guinea declares a state of emergency after violent riots break out. The U.S. Pentagon warns that $1 billion in Ukraine aid is at risk of theft. Morocco is elected to lead the U.N. Human Rights Council. U.S. regulators approve Bitcoin ETFs. Argentina secures $4.7 billion from the IMF. Donald Trump speaks as his New York civil fraud trials close. NFL coach Bill Belichick leaves the New England Patriots. And a study finds that climate change drove the largest ever ape to extinction. Chris Christie exits the GOP presidential race. Here are the facts as agreed upon by One America, The Washington Post, The Washington Free Beacon, The Daily Caller, USA Today and NBC. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie officially announced his decision to leave the 2024 Republican presidential race in a town hall event in New Hampshire on Wednesday, just five days before Iowa's GOP caucus. This comes as the 61-year-old who launched his anti-Donald Trump longshot campaign in June had faced mounting pressure from Republicans and donors opposing the former president, including Christie's longtime friend and New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, to drop out so as to consolidate support behind Nikki Haley. According to a nationwide Reuters-Ipsos poll completed on Tuesday, Christie was tied with non-candidate former Representative Liz Cheney among Republican voters at only 2%. Despite low poll numbers, he had vowed not to exit the race in an interview with MSNBC last week. On Wednesday, however, Christie acknowledged that his campaign failed to gain traction, arguing that suspending it was the right thing to do as he seeks to prevent Trump from returning to the White House. His departure is likely to boost the prospects of Haley in New Hampshire's January 23rd primary where the former South Carolina governor has been trailing frontrunner Trump by roughly 13 points. As polls show that she is the second choice of those supporting Christie, who was in third at 12%. Yet while offstage before his event in Wyndham, New Hampshire, Christie was caught on a hot mic apparently saying that Haley was going to get smoked in the GOP presidential race. NBC News further reported, citing an anonymous source, that Christie also called Haley a joke and claimed that she had performed terribly. On this program, we separate the facts, which Melissa just laid out for us, from the narrative spins. Our first narrative is the pro-Trump narrative from PJ Media. Christie never stood a chance to win the GOP presidential nomination, especially as his campaign was focused entirely on opposing Donald Trump. So his departure is indeed quite logical and expected. What's surprising about his decision is that he believes that his few supporters will help another alternative to Trump, though not even he can name a better option for the White House. Here's the anti-Trump narrative from American Spectator. Back in 2016, Christie made the terrible mistake of endorsing the then-outsider Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. Now, he and others within the GOP have realized that if Trump ever returns to the White House, he may establish an authoritarian regime. Nikki Haley seems to be the only viable alternative to prevent that outcome, and winning New Hampshire is crucial to that effort. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that Ron DeSantis 
will end his 2024 presidential campaign by January 18th. So the great thing about the TV show Survivor is not people getting all smelly and eating worms. It's that the people that you vote out eventually choose who wins. So you have to be Mm. careful how you vote people out as you go, because if you screw people over too much, they probably won't want to give you the million dollars at the end. That's the real genius of the show. That's why that show is still on. I actually know that about the show. Yeah. I've seen it. There's a survivor player, a notorious survivor, maybe the most notorious survivor player, Russell Hance, who was actually on the show a few times. And he was notoriously cutthroat, whatever it took to win. And every time on a couple of occasions, he got toward the end and no one ever picked him to be the winner because he was so cutthroat and he Mm. never got chosen. Now, there were other seasons of the show where the gameplay was respected and the person who won was the one who screwed people over the best. And if he had been in one of those seasons, he definitely would have won. Um, So it feels like to me, the game changed on Chris Christie. He made a decision. I'm the anti-Trump guy. Yeah. Meanwhile, the wind is blowing in Trump's direction more so than he probably expected. So he made a decision, stuck with it, and it didn't work. He played his cards. And in more Republican Party news, Haley and DeSantis attend the fifth GOP debate. Here are the facts on this story as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Reuters, and CNN. Five days before the Republican primary for the 2024 presidential election kicks off, former U.N. Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took part in the party's fifth presidential debate in the state of Iowa. CNN hosted the debate at Drake University in Des Moines, And DeSantis started off the night by saying that former President Donald Trump is running to pursue his issues, and Haley is pursuing her donors' issues, declaring that he's running to fight for voters and turn this country around. Haley argued that the U.S. needs a new generational leader, citing her executive experience as a two-term governor and her time at the United Nations. Haley accused DeSantis of being mad about the donors because they used to be with him, while accusing the Florida governor of repeatedly lying. Both DeSantis and Haley criticized Trump, who declined CNN's invitation to take part in the debate, for not sharing the stage with the candidates. DeSantis commented that the former president was not entitled to your vote, and Haley claimed a second Trump term would be four more years of chaos. Instead of taking part in the debate, Trump chose to take part in a Fox News town hall, with the event also taking place in Des Moines. The town hall was Trump's first live appearance on Fox News since 2022. Recent nationwide polling by Reuters Ipsos, which contained a margin of error of plus or minus 3% and surveyed approximately 1,900 Republicans between January 3rd and 9th, places Trump's support at 49%, followed by 12% for Nikki Haley, 11% for Ron DeSantis, and 4% for entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. Thank you, Scott, for that. We'll begin with a narrative A from the New York Post. Haley was the clear winner of CNN's debate, oozing confidence and continually exposing an uncomfortable-looking DeSantis for his false claims. Although neither a final nail in the coffin for the Florida governor nor anywhere near enough for Haley to bridge the polling gap against Trump, the former South Carolina leader, who's likely to be propelled forward following Chris Christie's recent exit from the race, gave a strong and assured performance. Narrative B comes from Daily Mail. 
With a focus on the upcoming Iowa caucus dominating DeSantis's campaign strategy, the Florida governor produced a signature performance against Haley, which will leave his supporters hopeful that this is just the beginning of a campaign revival. The last chance to convince a national audience before the public can begin the GOP nomination process. DeSantis may have secured himself as the clear alternative candidate to the Trump-dominated Republican support base. Here's the pro-Trump narrative from the Epic Times. While Haley and DeSantis traded vicious blows on the debate stage in a desperate attempt to prove themselves as the secondary Republican option, Trump calmly enjoyed a fruitful evening with Fox News. The former president continues to handsomely lead GOP support, and despite DeSantis and Haley insistently fighting for survival, the nomination race continues to be over before it even began. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 92% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Scott, there's a lot of talk about, uh, you know, oh, exposing DeSantis's uncomfortable, you know, an uncomfortable looking DeSantis. Is it possible that he's just uncomfortable looking? Like he's just got a lot of neck and shoulder tension and he just looks uncomfortable all the time. Maybe he's actually very comfortable and he just looks uncomfortable. My son, if you tell him to smile for a picture, it looks weird because he's yes. like trying to smile and show a lot of like teeth and whatnot. huge teeth. Yeah yeah. 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 And he's doing what you're supposed to do. It just doesn't quite look right. And we think it's cute. If you tell him something funny, then he smiles much more organically. Right. Um, maybe that's what it's not easy. Not everyone's as talented as you are, Melissa, is what I'm trying to say. You may oh, be a yeah. gifted thespian, but um, maybe DeSantis is not. And he's he's just struggling with what he's got. Papua New Guinea declares a state of emergency after violent riots. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, BBC News, Time and The Guardian. Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister James Marape on Thursday declared a state of emergency after at least 16 people were killed during rioting and looting. The violence began after hundreds of police, soldiers, and prison staff, among others, walked out due to not receiving full pay. Under the 14-day state of emergency in the capital city of Port Moresby, more than 1,000 soldiers have been placed on standby to step in whenever necessary. In addition, the country's chief of police and high-ranking bureaucrats in the finance and treasury departments have been suspended while a review of the cause of the unrest is conducted. Australia, which often assists Papua New Guinea with security matters, said it had not received a request for help. The emergency decree comes a day after public servants, including police, protested outside Parliament over unexplained deductions of up to $100 or 50% of their pay. The government attributed the pay cut to a technical glitch, emphasizing the administrative error would be corrected in next month's payments. Many protesters who reportedly linked the pay cut to an alleged increase in taxes burned down shops, looted businesses, and stormed Manasupe House, home to the Prime Minister's office. Nine people have reportedly been killed in Port Morrisby, and according to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, seven have died in the northern city of Leh. Thanks, Melissa. Radio New Zealand brings us Narrative A on this story. The riot stems from Prime Minister Marape's negligence in both his economic leadership and reaction to the riots, not just the sudden wage reduction. 
As several parliamentarians have resigned in protest of his incompetent and selfish rule, Marape too should do the right thing and step down from office. Here's narrative B from The National. The opportunists are breaking the law and holding the country to ransom, despite reassurances from the government that the cut was the result of a glitch and no new tax had been imposed. While the country works to obtain more foreign investment, the unrest has been orchestrated by members of parliament, and the violence has been encouraged by police. How about how it's just part of human nature? If people are doing weird stuff, then you feel more that you can do weird stuff, too. Isn't that crazy? We are pretty we're pretty weird like that, aren't we? It's weird, know, but think about put yourself in those shoes, right? Now you're going oh, believe your life. me, I'm I'm doing weird stuff. If if everyone else, I'm not saying I'm exempt it's from this. It's so I'm, exciting. Yeah, like, this, what are we doing also, right now? I yeah, yeah. Oh, what are we doing? Let's do it. Yeah, cool. Never done um, this before. Now it all it also works the other way around. Like, oh, a bunch of people are working hard and getting stuff done. I better get myself together too. You know, like yeah, you are who sure. you hang around with. You know, that's yeah. kind of what like CrossFit is all about, right? Like we're all getting fit. So you that's right. should just do that too. Or, you know, gangs in LA. That's what Well, that's sure. Too. There's that right. too. The Pentagon reports $1 billion in Ukraine military aid is at risk of theft. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, CNN, Ukraine Forum, Forbes, and The Guardian. The U.S. Department of Defense reported Thursday that a little over $1 billion worth of weapons sent to Ukraine are delinquent, citing an inability to maintain complete accountability. This means that future aid shipments to Kyiv will be difficult as the inventory continues to change, according to the report. Shipments have included equipment ranging from anti-tank, surface-to-air missiles, drones, medium-range missiles, and night vision devices. U.S. officials have reportedly intimated that the Biden administration was willing to lose track of some weapons so long as others made it to the right end users. Republicans are still blocking a White House-proposed $106 billion military aid package for both Israel and Ukraine. Washington has sent around $44.2 billion to Ukraine since the war began. This comes amid Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's meeting Thursday with Estonian President Alar Karas, where he rejected the idea of a ceasefire claiming it would allow Moscow to rearm itself. Russia has reportedly discussed purchasing missiles from Iran, as well as one million rounds of ammunition from North Korea. Karas said Estonia would spend 0.25% of its defense budget during 2024 to 2027 on supporting Ukraine. Before stopping in Estonia, Zelensky met with Lithuanian President Jatanis Nezweta, with whom he said he would talk about cooperation on electronic warfare and drones. Nezweta, meanwhile, said the pair would also discuss Ukraine's integration into the EU and NATO. Following 500 recent Russian missile and drone attacks, Zelensky said Ukraine needs modern air defense systems, assets which he said Kyiv is sorely lacking. Meanwhile, Swedish defense officials faced controversy over remarks about a possible future war in the context of Sweden's NATO ascension and Russia's aggression. In Finland, the government announced Thursday that it will keep its borders with Russia closed until February 11th, accusing Russia of continuing its hybrid influence activities by sending migrants across the border. On the battlefield, the general staff of the Ukrainian military reported 73 combat clashes between Russia and Ukraine in the last day, including four missile attacks, 48 airstrikes, 36 rocket salvos, and casualties among the civilian population. The attacks reportedly targeted multiple settlements in the Kharkiv, Luhansk, and Donetsk regions. 
Thank you, Scott, for laying down the facts. And here's an anti-Russia narrative from CNN. While it's true that Russia has been resilient in the face of global sanctions, the West has still been able to freeze hundreds of billions of dollars worth of assets, a percentage of which will go to Kyiv. The latest of these valuable assets is the Russian diamond trade, which totals $4.4 billion globally and $1.6 billion in the EU. Once Europe acquires these assets, it will be able to offer Ukraine the funding it needs to arm new waves of conscripts and push Moscow back. The pro-Russian narrative comes from RT International. Zelensky's own advisors are now against both lowering the age of conscription and continuing the war more generally. As the world has known for a while now, Western powers have blocked Kyiv from achieving peace since their purposely failed Minsk agreements a decade ago through the failed peace negotiations in Istanbul at the start of the war. Now that Ukraine is being called out by even the Pentagon for misappropriation of military assets, momentum is increasingly on the Kremlin's side. And here's a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 50% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine by December 2025. Morocco will lead the UN Human Rights Council. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, U.S. News and World Report, Business Live, and Voice of America. Morocco was elected in a vote in Geneva on Wednesday to head the UN Human Rights Council. This came despite objections from South Africa that Morocco's human rights record over its sovereignty claim over Western Sahara makes it unsuitable to take on the role. The continent of Africa was in line to assume the role of president of the Human Rights Council, but the 13 African members of the council were not able to settle on a single candidate, making a vote necessary. In that vote, Omar Zaniber, the Moroccan ambassador, received 30 votes in a secret ballot to lead the council as its new president. Before the vote, South African Ambassador Mikolisi Nikosi informed the media that Morocco would damage the credibility of the Human Rights Commission, calling Morocco the antithesis of what the council stands for. Nkosi secured 17 votes for the role. Algeria and South Africa both dispute Morocco's Western Sahara claim as they support the Polisario Front, which seeks independence from Morocco. Despite Algeria and South Africa's vigorous lobbying efforts, Morocco was able to gain support for its bid to secure the presidency of the body. Morocco has also been criticized for its alleged discrimination against women and minorities. Non-governmental organizations also accuse Morocco of repressing journalists and violating the human rights of activists. Additionally, Morocco has been accused of breaking into the phones of international and Moroccan journalists, activists, and politicians by using Pegasus spyware. The kingdom has refuted these allegations, calling them unjust and fantasist. The UN Human Rights Council is the only intergovernmental body in the world created to protect human rights at a global scale. The 47-member council meets in Geneva several times a year as the authority to impose stricter oversight on countries' human rights records and to order investigations. Narrative A on this story comes from the Rafto Foundation. At a time when we more than ever need a strong and undivided UN, choosing Morocco to lead the UN Human Rights Council will only serve to undermine the credibility of the UN system. Morocco has persisted in systematically violating human rights. Morocco's illegal occupation of Western Sahara, which has lasted for nearly 50 years, is probably the worst of all its human rights violations. It's a sad day for the human rights community. Here's Narrative B from Morocco World News. 
The appointment of Ambassador Omar Zaniber to serve as President of Human Rights Council in 2024 is a great honor for both the Kingdom of Morocco and the Ambassador. Morocco's nomination was enabled by its dedication to ensuring universal respect for human rights and its ongoing engagement with addressing global issues. The Council's perspective on international human rights initiatives will most certainly be influenced by Morocco's vast experience in protecting and advancing human rights. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that Morocco will recognize Western Sahara by September of 2118. The U.S. government approves Bitcoin exchange-traded funds. Here are the facts. As agreed upon by Investopedia, Bitcoin News, CNBC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the New York Times, and USA Today. Bitcoin began trading exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, on Thursday, one day after the Securities and Exchange Commission approved the spot market Bitcoin ETFs. A total of 11 Bitcoin-holding ETFs will be listed on the following three exchanges, NYSE ARCA, NASDAQ, and the SIBO BZX Exchange. The SEC's decision also allows asset management companies such as BlackRock and Fidelity to issue competing Bitcoin funds. BlackRock's application for approval this past summer potentially spurred optimism about the SEC's ruling on Wednesday. Despite the SEC's approval, regulatory body chair Gary Gensler wrote in a statement that his agency did not approve or endorse Bitcoin. Gensler suggested that the decision was made to comply with a court ruling that struck down the SEC's decision to disapprove the listing and trading of Grayscale's ETF, referred to as an exchange-traded product within the SEC statement. On Tuesday, the SEC appeared to have announced the approval of Bitcoin ETFs in a post on X, causing the cryptocurrency's price to surge. However, Gensler later stated that the regulator's account had been hacked. Two out of the SEC's five-member commission voted against the decision. Bitcoin traded above $47,000 on Tuesday. At the start of 2023, the digital assets sold at roughly 17000 Thank you, Scott, for those facts. And here's the pro-establishment narrative from CBS. The SEC's decision to approve Bitcoin ETFs opens up the cryptocurrency to millions of investors and further legitimizes the digital asset. While there are still questions about the underlying value of cryptocurrencies, the approval shows that crypto has entered the big leagues of finance. With the backing of the world's biggest companies, such as BlackRock and Fidelity, Bitcoin is entering the mainstream and can now be viewed as more than just an outsider's investment. The establishment critical narrative comes from Coindesk. While some wealthy Bitcoin investors may be happy about the SEC's approval of Bitcoin ETFs, true crypto supporters know that this move will only lead to regulation and restriction of the financial medium by the very powers it was created to defy. Bitcoin and other examples of decentralized finance were created to avoid the oppressive thumb of big banks and beltway regulators. At first, the powers that be tried to suppress and destroy crypto. After they failed to do so, they proceeded to infiltrate the industry and turn it into a mainstream commodity. Bitcoin ETFs traded on mainstream exchanges may be a win for some, but they go against the spirit of cryptocurrency altogether. And here's the cynical narrative from Money Week UK. Although Bitcoin ETFs have been approved, it's clear that the SEC still does not trust cryptocurrencies. Often the victim of fraud, hacking, and theft, those who do place their money into crypto should remain vigilant for the many bad actors that continue to take advantage of the vulnerability 
and volatility of investments. And the nerd narrative from Attackulus, there's a 50% chance that five or more countries will recognize Bitcoin as legal tender by the year 2030. Argentina unlocks $4.7 billion from the International Monetary Fund. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, El País, Buenos Aires Times, Bloomberg, the IMF, and Latin Finance. Argentina on Wednesday secured $4.7 billion from the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, as new President Javier Millet looks to revive an economy that is grappling with 160% annual inflation and a 40% poverty rate. After a week of negotiations, Millet's government unlocked the money as part of an agreement to pay down the $44 billion it owes. The $4.7 billion is not a new loan, but is rather part of pending disbursements from a previous deal between the two parties. The government will use the money to help pay its debts. Millet's deal secures more than the expected $3.3 billion tranche of a loan that was slated to be disbursed. In addition to the $3.3 billion, the IMF advanced the remainder as part of a debt paydown plan. The payment also buys Millet's libertarian government more time to decide whether to continue Argentina's debt repayment program, brokered by his predecessor, or negotiate a new deal. The IMF first provided a $44 billion bailout in 2018, which was replaced in 2022 after the government failed to comply with the IMF's terms. Argentina will be able to access the funds after the IMF Executive Board reviews the agreement. The IMF said that Millet's ambitious stabilization plan will help Argentina meet the targets and bring the current program back on track after the previous administration's alleged policy setbacks. The program's goals include reaching a primary surplus of 2% of gross domestic product by 2024 and increasing international reserves by $10 billion. Economy Minister Luis Caputo said that the current program will be reviewed again in April. The Rio Times brings us the right narrative spin. President Javier Millet is doing all he can to fix the utter economic disaster left by his leftist predecessor, and his agreement to secure $4.7 billion from the IMF shows that he has institutional backing. This agreement does not add any more debt to Argentina's balance sheet, but it does grant Millet's government flexibility to determine how it will pay down the money it owes to the IMF. The road was never going to be easy, but Millet's ambitious economic plan is already restoring Argentina's legitimacy. Economic recovery will take time, but Millet's free market approach will yield great dividends in the future. Here's the left narrative from U.S. News and World Report. While many Argentinian people may have agreed with Millet's brash rhetoric and hardline approach to economics, the honeymoon phase is wearing off quickly as markets react to his administration's extreme policies. After a month, Argentina's inflation continues to skyrocket, and he has no defined plans to pay off the country's massive debt. Millet is trying to buy time by securing IMF payments, but that won't fix Argentina's economic crisis, especially with such severe austerity. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 24% chance that Argentina will fully dollarize its economy before 2028. Trump speaks at his New York civil trial after the judge faces a bomb threat. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, The Hill, Washington Post, and Reuters. 
Donald Trump called himself an innocent man on Thursday when granted permission to speak by Judge Arthur Engeron during closing arguments in New York Attorney General Letitia James' civil fraud suit against the former U.S. president, his family, and their business. Although Engeron refused Trump's request to speak during the closing arguments on Wednesday, the judge acquiesced to a request from Chris Keyes, a lawyer for Trump. Engeron had warned Trump to keep his comments to the facts of the case, but the frontrunner for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination accused James of hating him and wanting to stop Trump from getting elected. He also called the charges a fraud on me. Meanwhile, Thursday's proceedings saw a slight delay because of heightened security at the courthouse after Nassau County police had to respond to a hoax bomb threat at Engeron's home around 5.30 a.m. in Great Neck, New York. Engeron is considering what penalties to impose on Trump following his September ruling that affirmed the former president fraudulently manipulated property values. Trump has appealed that judgment. James is seeking $370 million in damages and a ban on the Trump organization from doing business in the state of New York. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Here's the pro-Trump narrative from Fox News. The least Engeron could do was let Trump, who has done nothing wrong, speak at his own trial. Otherwise, Trump has been denied most of his rights, including the opportunity to postpone the proceedings while he mourns the death of his mother-in-law. It's obvious this is James's contribution to the Democratic witch hunt that seeks to derail Trump's re-election to the White House. And the anti-Trump narrative from Rolling Stone magazine. Engeron knew what was going to happen if he granted Trump the right to speak in court, and the former president acted accordingly. Instead of showing remorse or presenting a factual argument to defend himself, Trump used the opportunity to deliver his rehearsed list of grievances and his oft-repeated accusations of a witch hunt. He made it easy for Engeron to throw the book at him. And Metaculus has another prediction in this nerd narrative saying there's a 92% chance that Trump will be the GOP 2024 presidential nominee. Have you ever been in a bomb threat, Melissa? Oh, God. Uh, fortunately, no. I, I have. I don't think so. In high school, some and, and not every time was a hoax. But in high school, someone got the idea... I mean, at least three, but it may have been five times over the course of the second half of my senior year of, of high school, mm. we had bomb threats. So at that was first- a, a popular thing. Yeah, it was, it was cuter oh, back the then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> at first, they made us go home, but then once they got wise that everyone was having a great time just leaving, then they made us stay and put us in a super boring room. It just so happens the junior high is a 10-minute walk from the high school. So they made everyone walk in the cold to the junior high and sit in the little kid cafeteria with nothing mm -hmm. to do. <laughs> and then there you go. that eventually put a stop to it. Because at first it was like, sweet, so we have to go home? No. no. Cool. Okay. Let's, let's call do in that. a bomb threat today. There's yeah. a quiz. And then, yeah. it, and then it kept happening. Uh, they eventually caught who it was. I think it was like Jamie Munger or something. I don't know. Bill Belichick and the Patriots mutually part ways. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Boston Herald, NFL.com, Yahoo Sports, CBS, and Business Insider. The New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick and owner Robert Kraft on Thursday announced a mutual parting of the ways. 24 years since Belichick's hiring sent the Patriots on an unprecedented run of success. Belichick's stint on the New England sidelines was the arguably greatest head coaching run in National Football League history featuring 17 division titles, 13 appearances in conference championship games, 
nine Super Bowl appearances, and six Super Bowl championships. The 71-year-old Belichick went 266 and 120 in the regular season and won 30 playoff games in 24 seasons with the Patriots. But New England made the playoffs just once after quarterback Tom Brady left the team in 2020, and their 4-13 2023 season was the worst of the coach's career. Belichick at a press conference called Thursday a day of gratitude and celebration before giving credit to his players who win games in the NFL and saying that he will always be a Patriot. Kraft compared his owner-coach relationship with Belichick as a good marriage that required a lot of work, adding that the high expectations they had were exceeded over the past 24 years. Although it's not known whether he'll coach again, Belichick is currently 14 wins shy of tying Don Shula for most victories by an NFL coach. Patriots will immediately begin their search for Belichick's replacement. Thanks, Melissa. The Guardian brings us narrative, eh? Like most legends of sport, Belichick couldn't keep the magic going, and now he's paid the ultimate price for his failure to recognize Brady's importance and retain the quarterback services, and his inability to select the right talent for several years since Brady left. The game may have passed Belichick, as evidenced by too many recent fumbles, both on the field and with the roster. And narrative B is from the New York Post. With more than a handful of NFL teams in the market for a new head coach, Belichick is sure to be in demand. Despite how things ended in New England, Belichick's career resume speaks for itself, and his career is marked with points where he evolved to changes in the game. Assuming he wants to coach, he'll be on another sideline next fall, chasing Shula's mark to further accentuate his Hall of Fame career. In the pipe dream of all pipe dreams, I'm a New York Giants fan, and if Bill Belichick famously cut his teeth as the defensive coordinator for the Giants in the 80s, and the Giants just fired their defensive coordinator. Oh. And it would just be the tops, like the tops. Oh, man, full If Bill circle. Belichick would come back and be the assistant, the defensive coordinator for the Giants. Now, unfortunately, those wins wouldn't go toward chasing Don Shula's mark. So he right. probably couldn't. And he only has so many. He doesn't have a year to throw away. You know, he's 71. He's got to, yeah. you know, if he can get a head coaching job, which he definitely can. But that would be... You know, if I could wave a magic wand, that's what I would do. Yeah. You know, but that's not going to happen. Put him in a, in a full circle yes. uh, career. Yep. Okay. Would that be a pay? Uh, be kind of a, a downgrade in pay. I mean, they could probably, I mean, they can pay him whatever he wants. I mean, I think mm. the greater conflict would be Brian Dayball, who actually is a Belichick disciple. Would he feel threatened by having Belichick as his assistant? Uh, and then well, would it yeah. like, you know, you would it throw off the whole, like you'd have to make it very clear to everyone, Belichick's here for two years to coach the defense. Because that's really what Belichick's specialty is. Now mm. he's the greatest coach ever. But he, like his game plan for Super Bowl twenty five is in the Hall of Fame. If there's something that he's the best at, it's defensive genius. That's his thing. Now he's yeah. transcended that and become the greatest coach ever in general. But if there was a thing that he was, that's what it would be as a yeah. defensive stalwart. He gets to just choose, huh? He can do whatever he wants, but he yeah. really probably does want to. He's so 14 wins away from Don Shula. Yeah. That's one great year, two medium years, or three bad years. That's what it yeah. would take to break that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure he can do it. Pete Carroll's out, too. Did you hear that? Our final story, a study claim. 
Our final story, climate change caused the extinction of an ancient giant ape. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Science.org, CNN, Axios, and CBS News. A new study published in the journal Nature on Wednesday found that the world's largest ever primate, the Gigantopithis blackie, which stood at 10 feet tall and weighed as much as 660 pounds, went extinct over 200,000 years ago after it was left without its primary diet of fruit due to a changing climate. The Gigantopithecus thrived in the region between the Yangtze River and the South China Sea for millions of years, sustained by an almost year-round fruit supply before the climate turned dry and was divided by seasons. Because of this, it was forced to shift to a more fiber-based and less nutritious diet. The study's researchers determined that the primate went extinct between 295,000 and 215,000 years ago. They found changes in toothware due to the ape's shift from relying on fruits to eating tree bark and twigs, with its size preventing it from climbing trees or hunting prey, eventually resulting in extinction. After analyzing sediment and teeth fossils collected from 22 caves in China's Guangxi region over nearly 10 years, the team also found evidence of chronic stress among the Gigantopithecus population as it depleted. Since cranial fossils are the only remnants left, it's not exactly clear what the primate looked like. However, with its upper and lower molars at 57.8% and 33% larger than a gorilla's respectively, scientists could estimate its weight. This follows another study published in Nature in 2019 that discovered that the Gigantopithecus was closely related to orangutans, prompting questions over why the orangutan species Pongo widenreiki, which also lived in Southeast Asia and whose relatives still do today, survived while the Gigantopithecus didn't. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of narrative spins with narrative A from Medriva. The extinction of the Gigantopithecus not only tells us about the ancient past, but also provides lessons on how to deal with climate change today. Due to a drying climate millennia ago, this massive primate, which would typically rule atop the food chain due to its size, was left without the necessary fruits required for survival. The world should take note of this study and use it to protect our ailing ecosystem today. Human progress brings us narrative B. What caused the Gigantopithecus to go extinct is not happening today. In fact, the opposite is occurring. Studies have found that the rising amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has inadvertently increased global greening. The greening has resulted in an abundance of vegetation for species to eat, ranging from the Arctic tundra and coral reefs to rainforests and even the deserts of Africa. And the nerds have the final say today from Metaculus. There's a 29% chance that more than 33% of the Earth's land area will be covered by forests in 2050. One of the Philadelphia Zoo's biggest exhibits is a big ape exhibit with the gorillas and orangutans and stuff like that. That's one of their, you know, different yeah. zoos have different, like, their big thing. And yeah. I would say the Philly Zoo's primate setup is is one of the best. Oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, Seattle's is conservation. No surprise there. It's not any particular animal. They are just the, the zoo of They just let them all out. We're going to set them free. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, January 12th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. 
For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.